Do you know that sleep is a very mysterious subject? Uh, scientific students of sleep are not yet at all sure what sleep is. Apparently people need it, but nobody really knows why they need it from a strictly scientific point of view. And uh, we, need, we apparently need to dream in sleep also. People who are deprived of dreams uh, get very, very restless and unhappy. But we're not quite sure why we need dreaming. I mean, we've got all sorts of theories, the Freudians and the Jungians and so on. They think we know, they know why we need to dream. But it hasn't been really rigorously established scientifically why we do or why we need to sleep. But from a naive point of view, you can say, of course I need to sleep. Because after I've had a whole day of busyness and friends and work and so on, the, it's, it's too much. Uh, there's too much input. I want to digest it. And I, while I'm digesting it, I don't want any more input. I don't want any more information. So I want to be turned off. Uh, that's, you know, one of those simple common sense things that everybody knows, but uh, has not yet been fully explained. So sleep is this marvelous thing that we have, which is a forgettery process that is apparently essential to our psychic health every 12 hours or so. And uh, if you don't get it, you start getting worried. Uh, as a matter of fact, insomnia is a thing that is rather curious. Because if you do get insomnia, the, the worst thing of all to do is to worry about it. Invariably, if I can't sleep, I don't try to go to sleep, I get up and work. Or do something. Or I read a very difficult book, especially one that is big and weighs a lot. Uh, this is a good way to go to sleep. But if you have insomnia, don't try to ever try to go to sleep. Nobody can try to go to sleep. Lots of mothers think they can get their children and they say, darling, try to go to sleep. Didn't your mother say to you, try to go to sleep? Or she wanted to get you out of the way. That was the only reason she said try to go to sleep. Or she thought perhaps if she, it was good for you and that you ought really to get your sleep. It's like telling some child that it's got to eat its spinach. Uh, and you know, they, the child can start chewing and chewing and chewing on meat or spinach, which tastes of nothing, and it chews it into an absolute hard, stiff pulp, and there's just nothing to be done with it except spit it out. <laughs> and you know, they've already extracted by their teeth instead of their stomach all the vital juices from the thing, and all that remains is roughage. And you say to children, uh, you must go to the bathroom after breakfast. Uh, every day, regularly. You must be regular. Otherwise you're constipated and that's bad. Uh, this is a form of the double bind. You know, you are required to do that which will be good only if it's done voluntarily. <laughs> so go, try to go to sleep. It is impossible. 
Uh, sleep has to happen because it's a spontaneous activity and it can be helped, as we shall see when we come to consider torpor. But by and large, sleep is a spontaneous activity and is a way of turning yourself off to get away from the bombardment of awareness and forget, because forgetting renews. And that also is a function of all demolitions, of deaths, of uh, destruction of patterns, of uh, knocking down buildings, of the whole change process in the universe. Because we want to do what we've done before over again, only if you remember it too often, it'll become boring. So if you forget, then you can do it again, and it'll be just as amazing as it was the first time. And so there absolutely has to be a forgettery built into this universe in just the same way and for just the same reasons that there must be an eliminative process in the body as well as an eating process. And both are vitally important. And you see we have very different attitudes to the two. Eating is something we do socially, eliminating is something we do privately. Uh, eating we consider, we want the... the, the all good smells and all that kind of thing eliminating is all bad smells and that kind of thing but well, this is largely social conditioning that tells us this but uh, nevertheless uh, these are the two sides of the game we play and there's a spectrum between the two so in the same way here uh, you have to forget just as you have to eliminate so that everything is renewed because it can happen again without being boring Things that happen all the time, in any way, uh, begin to pass out of consciousness. For example, if there is a constant noise going on while we're talking, it will annoy us at first, but after a while we shall cease to notice it, if it's constant. But if it keeps varying and coming on in different volumes and different rhythms, it'll hold our attention all the time. So anything that just goes you eventually cease to notice. So then sleep is the renewer because it forget it's the state of forgetfulness. I'm not going to go in in this seminar into the whole problem of dreams. That's go would lead us very far afield. Now torpor uh, describes something approaching sleep. But this also is a valuable state because it's very comfortable. One can, in sleep, you're not aware of sleeping. But in torpor, you are aware of the comfort of tiredness and uh, minified consciousness. It is a sort of uh, pseudo-return to the womb. And so when after a hard day's work where people have been irritating and combative, you go home or you go to the local bar and you down a number of martinis, they turn you off and they put you into a state of near torpor or what is quite correctly and scientifically called by this learned and funny word, narcosis. Narcosis, uh, Narcissus, 
you know, uh, is connected with narcosis. It means torpor, reduced consciousness, reduced sensory input. And the reason why Narcissus is associated with narcosis is that Narcissus, when he saw his reflection in the water, didn't know it was himself. And he became so fascinated by this image in the water that he became uh, uh, unaware of everything else. He got hung up, or shall we say, uh, to use current slang, hooked on his own image. And he didn't know it was his own image. That was the only reason he could get hooked on it. So narcissus and narcosis are associated. And so not the normal, the permissive narcotic in our culture is alcohol. And uh, other narcotics like opiates uh, exist. But you must remember that you can only correctly use the word narcotic or something inducing the state of consciousness which is torpor. Now you can do it by massage, by relaxation exercises, by hot tubs, uh, many, many ways of inducing torpor. Uh, being, uh, you're, you're not in torpor, you're not truly relaxed because you tend to lose muscular tonus, which you always retain in true relaxation. But you begin to go like a limp rag. Now there's a place for that in life. And it's good uh, as a in way of sleep induction for people who have insomnia and uh, are so anxious that they don't allow themselves to be turned off. I would want to say in general a good word for sleep and torpor because a lot of people are against them. <clears throat> Uspensky, who was Gurdjieff's a sort of St. Paul, uh, and as much as a misinterpreter in a way too, uh, always felt that his life was a war against sleep. That intense light consciousness should conquer darkness. Now that's a stupid idea. Um, to be a, a human being, you have to love the light, but you also must trust yourself to the darkness. Be able to, to be, let yourself go in the faith that uh, you'll arrive back all in one piece. I have a friend who called, her, her name is Charlotte Selva, and she does a kind of work for which there is no name. Uh, she calls it um, sensory awareness. And one of her experiments is to get a person to lie on the ground and simply she says to them, now, it's all right, the ground is going to hold you up. So just, uh, just uh, lie down and there's nothing else you need to do because the ground is firm and it will hold you there. Then she examines the person's body after a while and says, uh, look, do you know what you're doing? You're trying to hold yourself together. As if your skin weren't strong enough to contain you. And you're doing this all the time to keep yourself from falling apart. Why? You think, do you, that if you don't hold yourself together, you're just going to go blah and disappear into some kind of frightful green jello? No, you won't. In the same way, a lot of people 
uh, was why we wear such ridiculous clothes, especially women. Uh, men are pretty bad, but women, the men do it around the neck. You know, that necktie, a symbol of slavery. It's a noose to strangle you with. Uh, but you feel tight, They're really held in here, and held in by the belt, and women wear girdles, <coughs> hold them in like this, and <coughs> in the coat that fits your body, jacket, you know, you put it on, and it fits, and you're squeezed, or you get these tight pants that hug you, and you know you're there. <laughs> Other people, of course, don't know they're there till they're sitting on spikes. Then they really know they're there. And a lot of people make trouble for themselves in order to be able to sit on spikes so that they know they're there. Now, supposing instead you switch to another kind of clothes, you wear Japanese clothes. I often wear Japanese clothes uh, because they happen to be, for men, the most comfortable form of clothing ever devised. Uh, there's only one place where it holds you, and that's at the, the, the belt. But you wear the belt not round your waist, but below your belly. And you wear it rather loose. Uh, otherwise, the, the garments are flowing. They don't interfere with the nature of the cloth, because the cloth is woven on a rectilinear pattern. See, cloth is straight like this. So when you get a Japanese kimono, it folds up instantly for packing. But you try to pack a, a Western man's jacket or a woman's suit jacket, and there's absolutely no way of folding the thing at all. So it always comes out of your suitcase needing to go to the, the, the pressing. But you take a kimono and you put it on and it falls exactly according to its own nature around you and they're very dignified. And you feel, but you don't feel closed in. Now that makes some people terribly uncomfortable. If they don't feel pinched and pulled together, they don't feel dressed. And feel this is, I'm going around in the bathrobe. And a lot of people can't wear a bathrobe beyond a certain hour of the day because they don't feel that they're respectable. I mean, you can perfectly well get up and put yourself into the most beautiful, any kind of gorgeous bathrobe you want to, and run around and do your work if you don't have to go to the office. Even if you had to go to the office, they ought to allow you to wear interesting robes. <laughs> And furthermore, I, I once asked a Japanese why he didn't wear a kimono anymore. And he said, you can't run for a bus in a kimono. <laughs> well, it's perfectly true. Unless you hoist it up and, and tie it into the belt, you can't. And that's rather undignified. But the thing is that in this age that is now forthcoming, when we're going to cut down the working hours because of automation, people have got to learn to saunter and dawdle. Otherwise, they'll get into mischief. And so, uh, forms of clothing, which are supremely comfortable, which, which require a kind of a sauntering attitude to life, are going to be very important for the future of civilization. <laughs>